and welcome to episode 124 of Herpetological Highlights. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting as ever is Ben Marshall. And in our 124th iteration of the podcast, we are going to be talking firstly about some social snakes. And then we're going to move on and talk about a brand new species. Well, actually, we've got multiple species this week, haven't oh, we, ben? Two for the price pair. of one bonus yeah yeah two for the price of one nestled in amongst a nice complicated phylogenetics paper <laughs> of course yeah we're just going to pick out a couple of fun frogs to talk about both of which have cool names so stay tuned for that but yeah first off right off the bat we've got a paper about sociality in snakes which you know snakes Absurd. aren't really historically they hate each other yeah. snakes aren't social what are you talking about they're, right. they're lone whatever they Wolves. are reptiles <laughs> Well, lone wolf snakes would be considered to be lone wolves, uh, but oh, maybe not because, you know, times be a changing. The shifting sands of time are casting aspersions on the idea of snakes being completely solitary animals. And we've got a paper all about that. And it's by Skinner and Miller, published in 2020, entitled Aggregation and Social Interaction in Garter Snakes, Thamnophis sertalis sertalis. And this was published in behavioral ecology and sociobiology which is very appropriate for such a paper yeah i have a feeling we might have touched on sociality in snakes in a previous episode but i cannot honestly remember which species or paper we might have covered because they all sort of blur together in my mind well i can tell you for sure ben that that little tingle of familiarity that you're was feeling it is justified it was rattlesnakes, right. yeah. And We've they tended about to kill with of... conspecifics as opposed, not conspecifics, like ones that are more closely related to themselves than ones that were less related to themselves, right? That's correct, okay. yeah. They did a kinship analysis and it turned out, yes, that timber rattlesnakes were palling around with their relatives over snakes that they weren't related to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that paper was like you know, a bit of a major shift in the way that we look at reptile sociality. There was that one. And we also, in the past, talked about Southern African pythons. And they, like most pythons, potentially all pythons, defend, sit and sort of not just defend, but help to incubate their eggs. They coil around them and sit on them, maintain the temperature and humidity mm, in a burrow sort of until they shiver, hatch. right? They do, yeah. yeah. They give a little shiver to keep them warm. And yeah, there was a paper quite a few years ago now, which was talking about after the eggs hatch, the female doesn't leave straight away. She actually still hangs around with the babies for around two weeks. And what she'll do, she'll bask at the entrance to the den because they nest underground in burrows of rodents. She'll bask at the edge and then go back to the eggs. And the babies also stay around the eggs and they sit and absorb heat from the mother for a couple of weeks. So that sort of takes nest attendance to the next step of sort of looking after those neonates for a, a window of time. And um, yeah, you know, for animals which are generally considered not to be in any way exhibiting social behavior, that's an extremely social thing to do. They're hanging around together. So yeah, those two things, among a few other papers, have kind of started to shift the paradigm away from snakes being asocial towards having social behaviors. And this paper that we're talking about today really just serves to increase that body of evidence and specifically for garter snakes and eastern garter snakes and as i said that's thamnophis sertalis sertalis and they are these sort of dark olive colored snakes with yellow stripes down the side and along the back to me they're found in they sort of feel that when i think of a grass snake 
I also think of a garter snake, and I also think of it feels like they pop up around the world. These slim frog fish eating colubrids can sort of handle a lot of different habitats, relatively generalist, but they have a certain look about them. I don't know what it is. Oh, it's just that family. It's that Nate. What is it? Natricity. That's a ticket. They just look so together. <laughs> you can pick them out. I feel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they have that kind of like slightly mean expression. Yeah. They look a bit scary. Like grass snakes. Classically are... colubrid, but with that mean edge. Yeah. Well, some people think of uh, Natricidae as a family. Natricidae. I can't remember if we've got into that in the past, but it seems. I like don't it's... think we have because the, the whole like family into subfamily thing. I don't know whether it. <laughs> I don't know how much of it's based on differences in data and how much of it is based on differences of interpretation of what family slash subfamilies should be. Yeah, we don't need to get bogged down. Yeah, in it, do exactly. We? But yeah, there's a reason you think that grass snakes look like garter snakes, and that's because they're all one big happy family. And within that family, they're in a subfamily. But yeah, they look a bit mean. They have this kind of like sort of slightly. Uh, aggressive eyebrow but i think they're generally extremely benign and certainly grass snakes my experience with them is that they're pretty unwilling to actually bite you they'll squirt their fishy goo on you which is actually way worse (laughs) yeah they don't bite but these eastern garter snakes they are found from canada all the way down into america quite far down into america they've got quite a broad range And in that range, they live in a variety of environments. They like forests, but they'll also hang around in fields, shrubland, abandoned farms, outbuildings, and even trash dumps, which is um, a little bit unfortunate. See, there we go. But generalist, it's it's proven my point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Really like watery areas, anything wet, lakes, rivers, bogs, ponds, drainage, ditches, etc. And one of the reasons they like those wet areas so, so much is because they primarily, much like our native grass snakes, eat toads and frogs, sometimes fish, but even slugs and worms. And they'll really eat anything they can overpower. Like, as you said, they're generalists. Anything wet or slimy, basically, is what you've described. (laughs) Yeah, essentially, yeah. If it's got its own natural coating of moisture, grass snakes will munch them down. Slurp them down, easy. They're live-bearing snakes. The females give birth to up to 40 live young. So, uh, That's a lot yeah, of snakes. not mucking around when it comes to reproduction. And, um, yeah, as I said, they're found in this broad range from Canada into the southern United States. And in the winter, they den together. So they come together and they communally hibernate in safe locations, referred to by herpetologists as hibernacular. And... It's kind of just before and shortly after this hibernation phase that they're gathering together, socializing. And it's thought that this is where the main body of any social interaction that they exhibit probably happens. And many animals, you know, like human beings, if you and I were to socialize, we'd maybe like go out for lunch, we'd eat together. Not so the case for snakes. Snakes cannot share food. It's a physical (laughs) impossibility for this species to share food. For this species, but I mean, we have talked about snakes that don't necessarily need to consume their prey whole and therefore could share. You're thinking about those ones that pull the legs off crabs and stuff. They could all share a crab. They could, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't on purpose. But maybe, you never know. It is also a massive exception to the rule. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if they were all like, ganging together to eat the legs off crabs as a party that would be wild but it seems quite unlikely but certainly in the case of garter snakes because they swallow their food whole you can't share a frog 
if you're swallowing it whole. <laughs> and if you try to share, you're going to end up with an accident happening where one snake eats the other snake. And if you keep snakes communally in captivity, it's that happens quite frequently. And the so, worst yeah. outcome of a lady in a tramp-esque sharing a frog scenario, right? Yeah, hmm. I think it's the polar opposite of the romanticism it, yeah. it, that you witness in The Lady in the Tramp. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this paper, basically, what they wanted to do was they wanted to kind of, it, within a lab situation, emulate an environment in which garter snakes had the opportunity to socialize as far as you can in a sort of a bear tank with a few hide boxes in it. But yeah, they wanted to do a number of things. The main question is like, okay, we're putting all these groups of garter snakes together and they want to see if there's a sort of pattern to how they organize themselves within an enclosure with four hide boxes, whether or not snakes are deliberately choosing to mix with the same snakes over and over again, you know, kind of beginnings of a suggestion of snake friendships, perhaps, <laughs> but not necessarily. And yeah, they did that by having these four groups of 10 snakes that they put into enclosures and they looked at whether or not they were choosing to be under the same hides and whether or not they were choosing to be under hides with more snakes, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you can picture picture a, I was going to say arena, but that sort of implying something circular that or goes, elliptical. Oh, does it? Really? Does that? Really? You think an arena has to have round sides? In my mind, I picture Roman Colosseum-esque scenario. When you say Thunderdome, I think of a dome. I think of something circular. But this is a box. I suppose a box could be... Arena, yeah, sure, fine. But <laughs> connotations to me are circular. So you've got this box about three quarters of a metre wide. You've got water dishes in each corner. And then you've got these shelter objects, which are just like overturned. Like, what's a nice way of describing like, Ready meal containers. Yeah, like ice cream tubs with holes cut out for the snakes to go in and out. Separated at each of the edges. Your snakes are placed in the centre simultaneously, although they did also perform some experiments where the snakes were delivered to randomly assigned shelters to see if that made any difference, and it basically, no, it didn't. So you give your snakes there, and you see where they go, and then throughout the day, I think they did it three times a day, they yeah. recorded where the snakes were. All of the snakes individually marked, so you knew individuals, because like you're saying, it's important to know individuals if you're going to ID whether there are, they call them cliques, I think, in this, which I think is a nice term for it, because they're not necessarily friends. We don't know that. <laughs> but there are groups of more likely to be associated together or more likely to be found together. And you need to know individuals to be able to ID that. So yeah. over the course of, I think, nine days? Or was it seven days with two days of acclimatization? I think it was seven days of actual data collection. Recording three times a day, seeing where the snakes were and who they were sharing their shelters with, while also recording how frequently they were out and about roaming around and whether they were roaming around with conspecifics as well. Yeah, whether or not they were roaming around with other garter snakes. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, should we just get stuck into what they actually found, the main finding, which is quite cool? I think so. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, they did the group experiments. And what they found was firstly that snakes, when they came upon a shelter, were more likely to stick around and go into it if the shelter had more snakes. So shelters with higher numbers of snakes are more appealing to garter snakes when they're wandering around. Yeah, which I don't know, that's pretty much the key finding in this in my books is that they're not avoiding shelters that are already occupied. 
And yeah. the sort of implication here too, so the, the the environment is all the same temperature, right? So the implication is this isn't like a necessarily a thermoregulatory thing because there's no temperature gradient that they're they're making use of here yeah it's not like they found the all the snakes went to the warm hide right and when the snake arrives at the warm hide there's loads of snakes there and they're like oh it's warm yeah i'll go in there was none of that it was literally like any benefit which they can draw them in terms of thermoregulating so maintaining their body temperature is solely because of the amount of snakes that are in there and there is evidence that heat loss is reduced if you're a snake piled around loads of other snakes. So it's not to say there's no benefit, but any benefit is solely because of the number of snakes right. rather than it being the environment. when they arrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and that is one of the benefits that they think they might be drawing from these social aggregations is like, yeah, when you get there, if there's, num- if there's a number of snakes and you're all bundled together, any warmth that those snakes have will be conserved better by being surrounded by other snakes. Similarly, evaporative water loss which is a problem for all animals less so for snakes because you know they don't really have many openings that water can come out of but like any animal keratinized layer helps keep water in basically (laughs) it does yeah yeah. they're they're not completely waterproof and water will be escaping and that will be reduced if they're all sort of piled together and then finally if there's more snakes and a predator you know say they're hiding underneath a big rock and i don't know what sort of predators they would have some kind of I don't know, like a raccoon, for example, comes along, flips the lifts rock. up that rock, yeah. and there's 10 garter snakes under there. Instead of having a 10 in 10 chance of being eaten if you're on your own, you've just got a 1 in 10 chance. So there is that benefit to it, potentially, when predators are around. Yeah, so sort of safety in numbers-esque thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, on the face of it, it might seem like, oh, okay, so this whole experiment was finding out when a snake arrives at a hide, if there's snakes there, they like it. Yeah, like that is literally most of it, but... Before this paper, we genuinely didn't realise that. And it was thought, you know, snakes, as we said at the top of the show, were largely and still are by many people that you speak to, even people who are, you know, herpetologists. They tell you that snakes are completely asocial. It's kind of an easy line for when you're teaching kids about snakes. Like, they're strictly solitary. They're not social. Yeah. But that may not be the case. It's sort of the thing, like any of these things, the closer you look, the more complex it gets. I mean, that's the beauty of biology in a lot of ways. But there is the second part of this sociality that there were groupings sort of developing of individuals that there were certain individuals that were more likely to stay with other certain individuals they did this sort of network analysis which is not worth explaining in any great detail but you can imagine imagine a confusing analysis no no i'm trying to (laughs) trying to picture the like visualization where you've got each snake represents a node essentially and you've got lines connecting all your snakes. But some of those yeah. connections are stronger than others. I don't have a good way of explaining that other than if you're familiar <laughs> with what a network looks like. Because it's not, I, I would like to say spiderweb or something like that, but that's not quite right in terms of no. structure. It is all different points, i.e. all different snakes connected to all other different snakes. And those sort of connections had differing strengths. And you had some individuals that were not as sociable as others whereas you had other snakes that were more sociable and tended to shelter with others but not equally there were cliques developing (laughs) i don't know if that's a very great way of explaining it but yeah i mean little friendship groups that's what you're saying yeah imagine when you were a kid (laughs) this is really going to actually only reply to a very certain age demographic 
So maybe it's not the best example. But you know MySpace back in the day, the very first social media, and you could pick like <laughs> six, six. Imagine all your MySpace friends laid out on a page. Each one's a dot. You're all connected by lines. The ones, the six that you put on your front page as like your coolest friends, really your friends who had the coolest picture and made you look cool. Those would have fat lines. <laughs> the, the most social credit or whatever you, you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. yeah. So like you got big fat lines between you and your best buds, but thinner ones between your sort of acquaintances. And that's what a network analysis of garter snakes looks like. Yeah, there were examples of individuals that were less sociable than others, and that itself is pretty cool that you can ID, uh, I mean, you can just call it individual variation if you wanted to be very boring, or you could point it towards being an indication of personality, potentially, a person, you know, different personality traits appearing in these snakes. And that. Much like people, some are introverted and some are extroverted, it seems. And that's sort of what's coming out with this study i would say it's do you want to just touch on the other sort of two side experiments they did just as a what the boldness yeah so they had boldness and like another sociality assay the boldness one was pretty pretty simple it's put snake in box with shower site and determine how much time the snake is out exploring versus sheltering in place quite straightforward more exploration bolder okay the sociable, the sociable one was quite cool though, wasn't it? Yeah. I liked how they, so they wanted to find out whether or not, well, how sociable snakes were. And they did that by having two hide boxes available to the snake. One didn't have a smell and the other one had the smell of garter snakes. And I thought the way they created the smell of garter snakes was equal parts fascinating and disgusting, where they kind of <laughs> got a bunch of garter snake shed skins, squeezed them up. And then a bunch of like, eventually, if you like can condense the goodness in a bunch of shed snake skins, you eventually get a little bit of fat dripping out. And they use that fat to drip onto some blotting paper and put outside the hide. And snakes which chose to go in the hide, which smelt like a bunch of garter snakes, were considered to be more social than those that would prefer to choose the hide that had no smell. Yeah, which I think is more akin to what we were talking about with the rattles, with the rattlesnake study previously, right? It was all about scent of others. I mean, they had individual scents as opposed to something more generalized here. But yeah, similar sort of thing, right? Yep, totally. And this, this is a species which is known to follow the scents of fellow garter snakes to find resource. They lay down chemical trails where they go and other snakes can sense that and they're, they're thought to use that as a means of finding either places to hibernate or um, other individuals to mate with. Yeah, and both this sort of boldness and sociality experiments showed, again, individual variability. See, I'm going to sort of try and make the transition between like the boldness being connected to sociality or not. And the trick is that the relationship between the two and how that interplayed with how many connections to other garter snakes they had is kind of complicated and kind of confusing because mm. it varied throughout the day and sociality, their sort of sociability from that second experiment and the boldness from the first experiment, those two things interacted. So different scenarios led to different relationships between the two things, <laughs> which is really hard to summarize in just speaking it without showing graphs and things. But essentially, the takeaway I'm getting from it is that boldness and sociability don't necessarily directly correlate to snakes like gravitating towards bigger groups or not bigger groups and that sort of network side of things. 
and the, the relationship between boldness and how they're interacting with other snakes is complicated. <laughs> it's not like yeah. more bold ones don't care about being social because they're out on their own, you know, roaming around and they don't care about what the other snakes are thinking. It's not quite that straightforward. Yeah, they're just bolder. They're just bolder generally. And right. It might play into that sometimes, but it really depends on the weather. They sort of add in the discussion that those sorts of things get a little bit more complicated too because of the lack of like sharing food, where in other species, boldness can be associated with potentially increased foraging success, and therefore the sharing interacts with that in an odd way. Here, we don't have the foraging sharing, plus their experiments don't have anything to do with food. It's not super clear how those two things interact, I would say, yet, but... What it does point to is something really cool where you have multiple like personality traits, I suppose you could describe them as, and they don't necessarily match up in ways that you would expect. And therefore, yeah, it really points that there's some cool stuff to find out here. Yeah, I think once we work out how to study all this stuff, and also you have to do studies like this, which are like laying the ground foundation. You absolutely do. Otherwise, yes. Yes, 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 you yes. don't even know if there's... It's worth you know, looking like, at. Say, yeah, it's like, oh, it could be that all snakes are exactly as bold as each other. They all have the same sort of behavioral traits which characterize boldness and it's just a level playing field. Yeah. But unsurprisingly, that's not the case. And I think, to be honest, in anything, if you find a way to categorize the personality of an animal, you'll always find a continuum, I think. Oh, um, I mean, any personality trait does not exist. Like, it's not a discrete selected unit in evolutionary terms is it it's just when you a, say things like that ben it makes me feel like i'm slipping off the planet earth and into space yeah there you go drifting away and there's no oxygen and you can't breathe and that's it there's just yeah. this marasma of things happening and none of it means anything but it is but it is because like what is boldness like how do you define boldness isn't a discrete trait boldness how do i define yeah. it well it's when there's no hair left yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> but no, exactly. You're right. We have to like come up with a means like, okay, yeah, boldness is as we define it. And in yep. this case, boldness is willingness to be outside a shelter when you're on your own. Right. Does that correlate yeah. with other things you would associate with boldness? Yeah, probably. Is boldness itself a trait that is selected upon by, <laughs> you know, evolution and snake behavior? Do they care? It's very tricky. But there's yeah. no way of studying this stuff without some level of abstraction because how, you know, how do you measure it? It would be impossible. Yeah. So you have to make these concessions. And in this case, you know, they're super informative and show something really cool. But at the same time, there's always going to be more detail or like a slightly different twist to find out. And yeah. who knows if it happens in the wild too. Exactly. Yeah, it's a lab study. Yeah. Very sparse things. There's not really a lot for the snakes to interact with. So on the one hand, you can look at that as like a very pure study, but also it is so far beyond what they'll be experiencing in the wild. And some of the stuff they talk about where are they more willing to leave uh, hides when snakes are slithering around outside? I think in the wild, it'd be so infrequent that there was a snake slithering around in view of the hide you're in. So stuff like that, it's hard right. to think of how relevant they are. Yeah, a change of sort of perceptual range, how far you can perceive other individuals how far can you sort of plan ahead yeah yeah but this is one of those papers which is like exactly why we started the podcast i found this one quite hard going a lot of like sort of semi-novel concepts and just like confusing methods and analysis but yeah i mean a lot of methods i'm not super familiar with yeah, yeah. but the take home is that yes there is some evidence of sociality in these snakes and they managed to actually um relate that to the kind of conservation of the species in a way which i quite enjoy yes which 
was they mentioned translocations at the end of the paper, and we've talked about translocations in the past on the podcast. Occasionally, I would comment on things on the internet like, hey, if you're going to let that rattlesnake go outside that house, maybe try and let it go kind of close. Because <laughs> basically, if yeah. you pick many times, you know, they're called conservation translocations. Here in the UK, unfortunately, we love raising habitats to the ground. And when we do that, we haphazardly collect all the reptiles and amphibians and dump them somewhere else. This is a translocation. And it's kind of like thought of as, oh, we've saved the animals. But the reality is that many of them die and there's not really any good monitoring because there's no money for it and no one cares. And so you have frequently have situations where animals are dumped outside their home range, don't know what they're doing. And evidence where these animals have been tracked suggests that they behave quite randomly. They'll either go long distances, seemingly trying to find home, or they'll make mistakes and get killed soon after. But they relate translocation to this by saying... Garter snakes are caught and translocated, uh, likely because of developments, as same as goes on in the UK. When they are, they don't really give any consideration to the sociality of these species. They're probably thinking more, okay, we've got a park here where there's no garter snakes. We're going to dump some of these garter snakes that we've caught up somewhere. We'll put them here. And this park's probably got space for like, I don't know, eight garter snakes. So we'll let eight go here and then we'll let the other 15 go down the road on that. I don't know dump site yeah, or whatever yeah. but if these are social animals perhaps it's actually part of their survival is following cues from each other and teaming mm -hmm. up in various ways and you know aggregating socially might have other benefits like as we've discussed thermoregulation stopping water loss or even reducing predation and so in fact it may be better if you turn over a stump find 15 garter snakes under there it might be better to keep all those 15 together and then let them go together so that they have the best chances of survival in their new location I think that's a massively interesting and valid point. Yeah, they, they, you know, during this experiment, they did disrupt the groupings to obviously to take pictures of them under the shelter sites, but also as an experimental aspect of it. And they did reform the same groupings that they had prior to the disruption. Like they persisted. It wasn't like a, a random, okay, they, they formed these groups and if you don't mess with them, okay, the groups will stay, but as soon as there's a disruption, they'll just pick any other snake and just stick with them. They persisted after disruption. So I think your point of like scooping them up, translocating them, dumping them somewhere, you can fully expect those groups to persist if they had been formed previously. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when I said nobody cares, the environmental consultants themselves definitely care, but they're just doing the best with a bad situation. I should put that as a caveat it's the developers and the laws in the uk which are yeah. at fault the folks doing it are still cool and yeah but they are lim limited by the system which they operate yeah, within yes just to clarify yeah 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 yes yeah. so yeah there we go i think that's our episode on at least the paper covering sociality in garter snakes cool exciting development in the sociality of snakes and i would expect that there is going to be a lot more of this to come especially now people are doing the base work like this It'll be really cool to start seeing this translated into some wild environments. I would love to see yeah. some like radio telemetry studies of snakes which are known to socialise oh. together. If you could see them like zipping around near each other through active seasons and stuff like that, I'm not saying that definitely happens, but wow, that would be super cool. Yeah, there's a lot of capacity for... Yeah, uh, you need some pretty high-res radio telemetry data to, to be confident and enough yeah. individuals in a population. But... Uh, it would be hard. It would be doable. <laughs> it would be hard, but never say never. Yeah, definitely yeah. hard, but definitely doable. Like the, the, 
you know, it's done in other species that you can get more trackers and track them more consistently, for sure. And I'm pretty sure that you can glue transmitters onto garter snakes, which makes life a lot easier for a snake this small. I think they stay on when you glue them on. Yeah, so if you were to do, maybe the best way of doing this would be a very short, you know, a single season study, but a lot of individuals and then do multiple seasons and don't worry about the sort of longevity of tracking as such and just focus on pure individual sample size instead of duration sample size and do multiple seasons. Mm. Not sure how that would work analysis-wise, but I'm fairly certain that would be the way to go. Wicked. All right, well, let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bye week. And this bye week, we have got a paper by... Well, it's got loads and loads of authors, actually. Uh, Greenbaum, Allen, Vaughan, Bajajia, Barrett. Oh, I think you missed one, mate. I think you missed oh. Portic. Portic. I'm reading them in alphabetical order. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my bad. Don't ask why. Behan Garner, Conky, Dumbo, uh, Gonwuo, Hirschfield, Hughes, Igunzi, Kusamba, Luquago, Masudi, Penna, Rodell, Roke, Romero, Dehling. 2022. Pretty sure I did actually end up missing the one you said in the end. Yeah, you pointed and it out. I think you missed Reyes as well. Oh, okay, that's my <laughs> referencing software. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, but they're all there. They all contribute to the paper. And the paper is entitled Systematics of the Central African Spiny Reed Frog, Afrixalus levis, with the description of two new species from the Albertine Rift. And it was an Afrixalis species that I had as a frog call a few episodes ago, I seem to recall. Um, oh. So here they are popping up again. Well, they are charming little frogs. That's, yeah, that's for sure. they are. And so the sort of rationale behind this paper was that there's this geographically widespread species, Afrixalis levis, which is found in Western Central Africa, or was found, I should say, because this paper's updating this knowledge. But yeah, found in Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, and possibly in adjacent countries, and in the Republic of Congo and neighbouring countries. The bit in Democratic Republic of Congo and the neighbouring countries around that were disjunct. They're completely separate. There's like many miles the ranges do not touch each other and a few herpetologists in the past had been suggesting that these disjunct populations in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and Uganda were actually probably distinct species just based on the geography and so the authors of this paper set out to determine whether or not that was the case and sure enough it was um, there they did uh, integrated taxonomic analysis so genetic and morphological which we like this is credible and they <laughs> have described we, we, <laughs> we haven't assessed how credible or anything like that it's just oh yeah no, yeah no, no. <laughs> looks good on the surface <laughs> looks good on the surface looks good we are not yep, in a position yeah, no, to verify ticks, anything <laughs> ticks all the boxes you want to see ticked but yeah <laughs> They've described two new species. I mean, yeah, on the base level, though, there is like some genetic and some morphological yes, differences, yeah. which in recent episodes, I've been hammering papers, not hammering, but like basically outlining why I don't necessarily think that some species should be species. But this one, yeah, it certainly ticks the kind of immediate boxes that you want to see ticked. Both these new species do. And so, yeah, we're talking about two new little frogs. And to be honest, I think not only are these both very cool looking frogs, but they also have great names. And we like the name. So should we talk about Afrixalis phantasma first? Yeah. Or is it the ghost spiny reed frog? Cool name. Pretty awesome. 
pretty awesome. And so what does Afrixalis Phantasma mean? I think it's literally just phantasm, i.e. ghost. And that's connected to its, its spooky coloration, being a little quite pale, this pale grey, little darker specks. Gosh, how, how would you describe this frog? It's quite a slim, slim frog. Long stick, stick-like arms. Um, some quite different variation in the colour though, because they do have an example of one of the males that looks like, I don't know, grilled cheese, like slightly over-grilled cheese, I would say. Yeah. Uh, orangey, orangey with uh, dark flecks. That's not very ghost-like at all, but the others are very... No. Yeah, like a pale very pink white. grey. Yeah, with big eyes. Sort of quite tree froggy looking. Quite glass froggy looking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and you can, when you turn them upside down, you can see some guts in there. <laughs> you can see how they work. <laughs> yeah, that's what we want to see. And like you say, named after the Greek noun for ghost or phantom because they are ghostly. And what's their sort of ecology? They found the males. Males obviously easier to find because they're cooling. They found them in swamps and forest openings and at the edges of forest. Generally, they were perched above standing bodies of water with thick vegetation when they were cooling. And yeah, they're from sort of montane forest. Mm. And the forest that they're from just looks really, really beautiful. Very lush. Uh, mm, really lush and sort of quite cloudy and green. Super tiny frogs too. Both, both of these guys, about two centimetres. Wow, that is small. And let's talk about the second one. Yeah. The second one they've named Afrixalis lacustris. And the etymology of this one is from the Latin adjective lacustris, which means it belongs to or dwells in lakes. And this is because the new species is in the region of the African Great Lakes. So they named it Afrixalis lacustris, the lake dweller. Yeah, very similar sort of glass frog, tree frog-like skinny shape. I would say that one of them looks like a medium-cooked grilled cheese in terms of coloration. And others are sort of brown with white, pale splotches, sort of dappling almost. Yeah, this one's definitely my favourite of the two. I think it's more beautiful. It's more interesting looking with its little yellow toes and like you say, the kind of mottled whitey yellow yeah. and orange background on top. Very weird colour combo. Like the brown and white is, or, or brown and yellow in some cases. It's very, I don't know, they look too fleshy in some <laughs> in some way. Yeah, the one under, the, the, the picture of the one that's upside down, it looks like it has no skin. It looks like a peeled frog's yeah, leg. Yeah, really, really odd. Yeah. Kind of gross. But also, yeah, no, the top side of them is very nice, but the underneath is a bit too... It looks a, a bit, bit too raw. anatomical. Yeah. Yeah, looks like raw chicken. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they collected, again, males and females. Uh, these ones were found in swamps, in forest openings, and near forest edges, or from vegetation at the edge of streams, quite often overhanging streams in forest, and from also vegetation at the edge of Lake Tanganyika, in sort of non-foresty vegetation. Cichlid fans will know that lake. And uh, yeah, not a lot known about their natural history, Often really. Their love of lakes. Um, apart from their love of lakes. And they've never seen egg deposition or tadpoles in this one. Or calls. Any advertisement calls. So it's a bit of a mystery, the second species. Strong silent type, as far as we uh, know. Potentially. Yeah. Cool. Well, there we go. Two brand new species of frog in the genus Afrixalis. 
from sort of Western Central Africa, Afrixalis Phantasma from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda, and Afrixalis Lacustris from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> have you got any other business? I don't. I have no uh, any business of any type. Okay, I just have a couple of bits. We talked about pit vipers, or vipers, not just pit vipers, but vipers and their horns uh, a couple Ooh, of episodes yes. ago. We had a message from Scott Iper. Another reason for the horns potentially that we didn't discuss, particularly in the eye horn species, which are inhabiting desert environments, horns actually help form an eddy depression in solids like the oh, actors liquids. So yes. when sand, when the wind is blowing sand over the eye horns, they form a little depression. Yep. Keep the eyes out. Keep the eyes. It can still see out and the yeah, yep. sand's going to... It doesn't have to move to get its eyes out, which could give away its position. Or blink. Or blink. Because they can't. They don't blink. And also, in our last episode, the frog call was the blacksmith tree frog, Boana Faber. And we had an, a message from Paul Duren. He said, because we couldn't work out. Do you remember? We were like, why, why it does it sound? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Why is it called the blacksmith tree frog? We couldn't work it out. We thought a forge was a very dangerous place for a frog. <laughs> in fact. They loved it. Paul Duren used to work as a blacksmith and he said the sound one hears most often in a working forge is that of the hammer metronomically striking the anvil. Seems plausible that blacksmith tree frog was named for its call and it was. It was quite okay. similar to um it was that like eh, yeah. eh, eh, eh. and the, so, the yeah. rhythm of yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't mind that as a naming thing. It is poetic. Doesn't exactly speak to the species ecology, but at least it would help you ID it based on cool, if you knew that connection. Yes, mate. Exactly. I'm actually quite satisfied with that. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear you. If anything, then. it's a bit of a disappointment that people aren't more familiar with the sounds of blacksmithing in general, because it's freaking awesome. And yeah. <laughs> Add that to the long list of bizarre things Ben has strong feelings about. So, <laughs> blacksmithing's cool. You can't get away from that. <laughs> yeah, Black Swing is pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a new patron and just wanted to say thanks very much to Sonrisa Rogowski. Thank you very much indeed. We're immensely grateful for your patronage. And if, like Sonrisa, you would like to become a Patreon, then you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. And I think we just need to say if we've misrepresented anything in this episode, if we had made any errors, you can get in touch with us. Or if you want to ask us a question, herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on social media at herphighlights. And yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>